want you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 10 again. You are probably wondering why I am wearing this jersey today. And I'm just going to simply tell you, there's still hope. There's still hope. Maybe not for today, but there's always hope for the future. Maybe next year. So I am a proud Eagles fan, and I have no problem declaring that. And you'll kind of see how that works into the sermon today. Now, if you're aware of how football works, when teams don't do so well, they may trade out some players if there's attitudes, but they generally, if it's persistent, their their losing streak is persistent, they will trade out the coach. In this one particular situation, the coach left two envelopes for the new coach gave very clear instructions. When you encounter problems this season, open the first envelope. And if the problems persist, open the second. So the new coach comes in and he's rallying the team and they're excited and they jump into the season and they start losing again. Not only do they start losing, but the same problems they had under the old coaching regime, they still have and they're struggling. And so finally the coach in desperation opens the first envelope. And the first envelope says, blame all present problems on former coach. So he begins to tell the owner and tell the media that the problems that are here that continue to persist are the old coach's problems that he's inherited, but he is going to change them. And so as the season progresses, the problems don't change and they continue to persist. And finally, in desperation, he goes to that drawer, into his desk drawer and he opens it and he pulls out that second envelope and it reads it and it says this, prepare two envelopes. Okay, if you didn't get that, you're going to have to take that one, put it in your back pocket and read it for later, okay? All right. Here, here is my question. How does the world encourage I'm not too sure that those two envelopes were real encouraging for the guy. (laughs) Sometimes the world's advice isn't all that great. But how does the world encourage? Here's a few ways in which they will encourage. They will affirm emotionally. You know, many times, even us as Christians, we just kind of jump right into the truth, and we just want to share truth with people, and we don't affirm them emotionally. That's actually a good thing to do, because the Bible actually says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. But we kind of forget that passage in the Bible. So, I mean, that's a good idea. Another one, life's not that bad. Focus on what you've got right now. Not a bad truth. It is true. It is true that things aren't that bad. And it is true that what God has blessed us with, now from the world, they may not include God in that, but what, what we have is really good. God has blessed something called common grace. God has given grace to, to all people, and he has blessed all in many different ways. So thank them, thank, you know, be thankful for what you've got, right? Another one, hey, there's good things ahead for you, right? And when the world encourages us, you look in movies, how does Hollywood portray encouragement? You know, yeah, hey, look in the future. Maybe right now things aren't great, but look to the future. Not just be thankful for what you've got, but look to the future. Things are going to get better after all. You know, when you've hit rock bottom, you've got to go up, right? So things have to get better. And then they want to give advice. 
And it's usually based on their experiences. And sometimes it's good advice and sometimes it's bad advice. Now I'm going to tell you that this, this encouragement is not all that bad. It really isn't. Actually, I would encourage you to practice some of these things. The problem, though, is that the way the world encourages is inadequate. And we need to discover why that's the case. Why that's the case. And I'm going to suggest that we're going to find some answers here in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. But the world offers hope, but its hope is inadequate. I have hope that my Eagles one day will go to the Super Bowl and win again. Hopefully, they don't have to play the Pats again. But even so, even so, I am hoping for the future. But my hope, as you'll discover, Lord, forgive me, is an inadequate hope. How do we do this? How do we encourage people? What is that missing element that we need to discover? Let me read to you. Again, I read this to you last week. I'm going to read it again. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25. Here we go. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Now, there are three verbal commands that the author of Hebrews gives to us. Based on these truths, he extends challenges to us, okay? This is the first one, and it says, let us, what? Draw near. So here's what I want you to do. Circle that, let us draw near. That word, let us, generally is an introduction to it. It gives us the idea, hey, there's a command here. That's how we translate it in English. Let us, hey, do this. It's in the imperative, it's a command. In view of these truths, of the sacrifice and the sacrificer, do this. What? draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Verse 23, here's another command. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. And here's the last command. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. The next one actually is not a command, and it actually reflects or helps us understand better that first one, considering how to spur one another on to love and good deeds. And it's because this one's actually, forgive me, grammarians, I'm going to share it with you, or non-grammarians, I'm going to share this. It is a participle. But it says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another. Not giving up meeting together, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approach. Now, in review last week, and actually the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at how Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. We use the word propitiation. Now, you might remember the word expiation, and that means basically to wash away our sins so that we can be forgiven. You know, God can't just forgive sins on a whim. It is within his nature to be able to forgive them, but something must happen 
And that's what the world, and I'm going to read an article here, to, or, or uh, a quote to you here in just a moment, but the world doesn't get this. God doesn't just wave his magical spiritual wand and say, okay, your sins are forgiven. Something had to be done to wash away those sins. This word, propitiation, means to actually satisfy or turn away the wrath of God. God's holiness has been offended. Now, you can remember when you've been offended. Sometimes it was a right offense and sometimes it wasn't. But in this, it is God's absolute, infinite holiness that has been offended. And so therefore, every sin, though in our minds we can trivialize it, it's just a what? A white lie. The truth is that white lie was an offense against God's infinite holiness, whatever you can imagine, God's infinite. I mean, infinity is beyond our comprehension. I understand that. But in in your mind, imagine God's infinite holiness and my sin offends his holiness. And that makes my sin an infinite offense. I can see, church, I can never, and you can never pay off an infinite offense. To pay off an infinite offense must must mean you must, to pay off an infinite offense means You must be infinitely punished. And herein lies the problem with us understanding the the concept of hell. We just don't get it. And it is only because we don't get God's amazing, infinite holiness. Jesus, listen to this. Jesus paid that infinite offense. And he therefore satisfied the infinite holiness and the infinite just demands of this holy God. Now, the Bible calls this his wrath, the justice of God. the, The Bible says this in John 3.36. It says, those who believe in the Son have life, and those who reject him do not have life, but remain under the wrath of God. It also says in Ephesians 2.4, it says that we were by nature objects of wrath. And so this is where, this is the importance of propitiation, that Jesus' sacrifice not only washes away our sins so God can forgive them, but he paid the price, punished for my sins and for yours, an infinite sacrifice, the great God-man, infinite sacrifice to satisfy the just demands of God and turn away his wrath. Let me share a quote with you now to let you know just how much the world doesn't get this. There's a gentleman by the name of Sam Harris. Sam Harris, Christopher Hitchens, Charles Charles Dawkins, uh, Richard Dawkins, rather. They are considered the horsemen of atheism or the new brand of atheism, they call it. They've written several books. Sam Harris has written one. I'm I'm trying to remember it. I think think it's called The Death of Faith or The Death of Religion. Um, Forgive me, the, the, the title escapes me. But this is what he says in this. He says, humanity has had a long fascination with blood sacrifice. In fact, it has been by no means uncommon for a child to be born into this world only to be patiently and lovingly reared by religious maniacs who believe that the best way to keep the sun on its course and to ensure a rich harvest is to lead him by tender hand into a field and to a mountain t- or to a mountaintop and bury, 
butcher, or burn him alive as an offering to an invisible God. He doesn't stop there. The notion that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that his death constitutes a successful, here's the word, propitiation, and he's using it as we would, constitutes a successful propitiation of a quote-unquote loving God is a direct and undisguised inheritance of the superstitious bloodletting that has plagued bewildered people throughout history. The world doesn't get it. The world does not understand this concept of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, very quickly, let me walk you through this because this is going to be very popular. Kids, you go, to, you go to universities, they're going to talk about this. They're going to, Sam Harris is going to be one of their champions. Richard Dawkins is going to be one of their evolutionary champions. Christopher Hitchens has passed away. Um, he's now experiencing what he didn't know. The truth, though, is that Sam Harris has made this mistake in believing that these, this concept of blood sacrifice is both archaic and superstitious. Now, granted, I am sure that cultures unknowingly thought, hey, you know, the harvest is bad. There's been no rain. What can we do? Well, I tell you what, let's throw our child into the volcano, and wow, we did that, and it suddenly rained the next day. That must have appeased the gods. So that is superstitious. But where on earth did that come from? I'm going to suggest to you, because the next thing he says is that this concept of human sacrifice was the backdrop to Jesus' crucifixion. I think he's got it the wrong way. Because the truth is that When God created man at the fall, there needed to be some restitution or some reciprocity, a punishment that the Bible calls the curse upon man and his sin. There must be a just punishment that that is woven into the fabric, even in America, that when there is wrong done, there is a necessary punishment for the crime. But the, the punishment must fit the crime. As scripture says, life for life. So if you sin, your offense is an infinite offense against the infinite holiness of God. And the Bible says life for life. That's just the way it is. That is an ingrained principle in this universe that we cannot get around. I, I realize that in, your, in some of our minds, we may think that the American justice system is faulty, and that it breaks down here and there, and that there are, at times, innocent people who are punished. But here's the truth. America has the best judicial system in the world. Do you know why? I'm going to suggest to you why. Because it is the only culture that has truly, there may be some that are very close, and England was one, but the only culture, nation, that was founded in its judicial system and its laws on the Bible. That's right. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that in the very beginning when God created, there is this spiritual principle at work, life for life. When you sin, a life must be taken because the wages of sin is, help me out church, death. You see, it's not that these superstitions 
uh, that we see on the movies like Joe and the Volcano, throws the person in the volcano, satisfied, appease the wrath of the gods, and then suddenly it's going to rain or you're going to have a great harvest or the enemy's going to turn back or something good is going to happen. And superstition means this really stupid thing was done and this amazing thing happened as a result. And we put them together and so we keep doing the really stupid thing like throwing people into volcanoes. But what is this idea of about a, a blood sacrifice? You know what? From the very beginning, people in this world knew about sacrifice. We see it in the very beginning of Genesis. And as the world was divided at the Tower of Babel, that concept, those principles, went with many of those cultures. But because they had no knowledge of the one true God, or very little, and if they did, they lost it, they wandered. And they began to hold on to superstitions. And so they used blood sacrifices to appease their the wrath of their many gods. But in the beginning, it was not that way. Is this principle archaic? Let me tell you about a more archaic principle, the justice of God, life for life. Because of man's confusion, he brought in this concept of blood sacrifice. That superstitious blood sacrifice of humans, which God forbade, was not the backdrop to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. I'm sorry, Sam Harris, you got it wrong. It's the other way around. You see, my Bible tells me that from the be before the beginning of the world, Jesus Christ was crucified. The plan of God was always to have the son die for me. So what this does then is it opens our eyes to this amazing, relentless pursuit of God's love for us, that he would even be willing to sacrifice his own son for you and for me. You see, this is not a story then of some brand of Joe and the volcano or the Canaanite practice of butchering and sacrificing and burning little children to appease the wrath of God. But as all cultures with superstitions do, they start off with a kernel of truth. And because there is no direction, they wander off. You know what? As Christians, if we're not careful, we too can wander away from that truth. And God constantly, and this is the point of view, he's constantly calling us back to this truth. Jesus Christ is that one propitiation, that one atonement sacrifice for us to God. And this then gives us confidence to enter into the holy place, to enter boldly before his throne of grace. And so the, the, the author of Hebrews goes on and on. The challenge then that we find here is draw near to God. Draw near to God. Do you see that? Did you circle it, highlight it, underline it? Let us therefore draw near to God. Now, I covered this last week, so I'm only sharing this in with regard. I'm only sharing this for review. But there are times in which God seems very distant. He seems very distant. It's much like when you're approaching the Rockies and you're many, many miles away. They seem so small. And the closer you get to the mountains, the larger they seem. Can I ask you, as you approached, were they, did they just suddenly begin growing out of the ground? Is that why they got larger and larger? No, that's silly. 
That's silly. Now, the reason why they seem to get larger and larger is because we are drawing near the mountains. So here's what we discovered. Three things. Number one, why is it that we feel distant from God at times? And, and because of this, we don't pray. We don't read the Bible. We don't go to church or go to a celebration service. We, we tend to keep God a little off from us because we're afraid. There is this fear that somehow I have displeased him. God is distant. What did I do? Don't, don't you feel that way sometimes? And I'm going to suggest three. Number one, we looked at the very fact, sometimes this is just plain old emotions, hormones, whatever, and, and we feel a certain way, and it's not rooted in truth or reality in any way. We just feel this way. And, and there are times in which I'm counseling people, and I say, you know what? Maybe, maybe you just need to get more rest, or you need to, you know, there's a lot of stress, and these things can contribute to the, our, our feelings like this, but they're not rooted in truth at all. That's one possibility. Number two, we can feel distant from God because we have failed to grasp a hold of the truth again. You know, at our leadership training meeting this past Monday, Zach was sharing a personal testimony in which he's saying, you know what, there are certain truths, and I know these truths, and I would confess, I believe these truths, but I encounter certain events in my life and I get angry with God or I start to fear or worry. And, I, and he says, I realize this, that even though I say I believe them, in reality, at least at that moment, I am not. Because if I did, that would impact the way I feel at the moment. And so sometimes we feel distant from God only because we are struggling with taking the truth and allowing it to filter down into our reality. I'm going to just encourage you this, this week to, to, I'll use the term experiment with this. The next time you face a very difficult situation and you're feeling distant from God and it is not because of your sin except this circumstance, you're beginning to ask the questions, right? You're beginning to ask the questions, God, where are you? Why did you allow this in my life? And I'm going to encourage you, at that moment, start meditating on God's truth. Here's the reality. I understand how you feel, but what is the truth? Where is God in this situation? Where is God in this tragedy? He is right here. He has not moved. Well, I'm feeling, I'm feeling rejected by God. But the truth is, God says he will never leave you or forsake you. These aren't just trivial truths. These are realities. So we may say, you know what? I'm, I'm just feeling as if God's not loving me. But wait a second. God's love is unfailing. He will never withdraw his love from me. His love is infinite. It's not hot and cold. I mean, that's the way my love can be, but that is not the way our amazing God's love is. What is the truth? So this week, going through hard times, maybe some really difficult times, you begin to say, well, okay, why is it that I'm feeling this way? Meditate on these truths. Allow the truth to displace the falsehoods, the, the lies that you're believing, okay? And then number three, 
There are times, though, and this is really what Hebrews gets into quite a bit, in which sin begins to lure us away. It begins to to drag us away. And and the Greek word they use there, we didn't look at this too much, but Hebrews 3, it says that we are the deceptiveness. It, It leads us astray. The deceptiveness of sin, it leads us astray. And that there is this sense in which that deception comes from the outside, but there is a sense of compliance on our on our own. That sin looks so good, so alluring. Yes, it will satisfy. It will make me happy. I just need to, for example, I just need to divorce my spouse and marry this other person, and then I'll be happy. Wrong answer. That's not rooted in truth in any way. That is a lie truly from the pits of hell. Because the Bible says, no, till death do us part. I realize that there's the exception clause, but I'm talking about so many in America, even in the, the Christian church. You know, if I'm just not happy, I'll just do this. And God says, no. And we're, we're seeking after happiness. And so here's what we know. I did this demonstration for you. We, we do this to God with the one hand, and all the while we are searching and seeking after those things of this world that merely serve as distractions, or they captivate our heart, their sin, and we begin to love them, indulge in them, and we think maybe money is the answer, maybe this promotion, maybe this, maybe this, or maybe this, and we start striving after the things of the world. And I'm gonna tell you, all of these things will one day pass away, and it is only Jesus Christ that will truly satisfy. But here's what we've done. We have done this with God, and we have done this with the world, and we're seeking after the Lord. And, and the author of Hebrews says, wait a second, hang on. Because what you are doing is you are keeping God and his grace at bay while you're seeking the things of the world. No, we need to pay more careful attention to this great salvation. We, need, we, we want to be careful that the deceptiveness of sin does not lead me astray by a hardening of my heart. And he compares that hardened heart to the Moses generation that refused to believe God, grumbled all the time, was discontent, and turned away from the true living God. And they did not receive the rest, the promised land. And so there's a warning that's given here to us in Revelation. And it comes to us, he says, and then he he moves on from here. Let me make sure I'm not jumping ahead of myself. Give me a moment. And so when, when, let me just stay with this command. Let us draw near to God. You see, the reason why we can draw near is because the guilt that we had that made us, therefore, feel guilty in our conscience, that guilt has been paid for. We stand with no condemnation before God. He washed away the sin, and with the sin, the shame and the guilt. And so consequently, when we have a guilty conscience, there is something wrong going on in here that God's truth needs to deal with. And so we looked at this idea of the guilty conscience. And, and I want you, and I, I want to just take one, one more moment before we move on to the second command. And we're going to find something very interesting, I believe, in John chapter 13. 
after the sermon last week, and Cole and I were talking, and he brought this passage to mind, and I, I thought, what an excellent truth this is. What a good reminder this is. Now, the setting here in John 13 is Jesus, in order to show them the full extent of his love, begins to take on, he takes off his outer garment, and he puts on the servant's uh, towel wrapped around his waist, and he washes his disciples' feet and then dries them. How many of you have ever washed somebody's feet? Okay, a couple of us. Uh, this actually became, has become, for some churches, a, an ordinance, much like baptism and communion. I'm not sure that that's what Jesus was wanting us to do with this, but the example's there, and that is that Jesus now takes on this attitude and, and even physically symbolically with the towel, he takes on the nature of a servant and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. Well, he comes to Peter and Peter is incensed and then Jesus, in essence, you're my Lord, you're my master. I am not gonna have you wash my stinky, smelly, dirty feet that in all honesty haven't been washed in a week. So <laughs> this is a little embarrassing. I'm, I'm, I'm joking here a bit, but he, he did not want him to wash his feet. And, and Jesus said, you know what? If I don't wash your feet, you have no part in me. And so Jesus, Peter says, oh my goodness, then wash my hands and my head as well. And Jesus says this. He says, let, let me read it to you since that was what I was going to do anyway. Let me back up and I'm going to just read verse eight, nine, eight, verse 8 through 11. He says, no, Peter said, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Oh, then Lord Simon Peter replied, not, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus said, this is what he says, a person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean and you are clean though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. You see, we just read in Hebrews 10, it says that our, our hearts have been sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Back in the Old Testament, the priest when he was sacrificing, not only did he have to wash the sacrifice, but when he was done, he had to wash his entire body. And it was a symbol of a cleansing. And so the author of Hebrews is saying, your, your whole body has been washed. Jesus to his disciples said, you know what? You're all clean. That is, you've all had your bodies washed. He's not talking about the shower they took that morning. He's talking about you've been washed through faith in Jesus, you've been washed, your whole body's washed with clean. The problem, though, is that your feet, yeah, the stinky, smelly, dirty feet, they need to get washed on a regular basis. Now, it's interesting. I, I didn't, let me just say what he's talking about here. The idea, then, is that even though our bodies have been washed and our sins completely forgiven, we stand before him clean. There are times, though, when we sin in which we need to confess our sins because he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and do what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then it tells us to repent. Remember when he was talking to the, 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 the Ephesians in, in Revelation, Jesus dictating to John, write this down, tell the Ephesians who have forsaken their first love to repent and do the things you did at first. They're saved, they're godly, they're pursuing God, but they have, in, in trying to do what's right, they have, they have failed to pursue Jesus himself, the, the commandment giver. And they were trying so hard, like little hamsters on the treadmill, trying to do what's right. And, and he commends them, thank you, that is amazing that you're doing what's right, but guess what? 
You've left me way back here. Hello? Repent and do the things you did at first when you were first saved, that passion that you had for me and that, that desire and that longing to serve from a heart that surrendered and yielded to me. That's what I want again. And so he says, repent. And I'm telling you, when there are times in which we're doing this with God and, he, and we are seeking after the things of the world and he says, repent and do the things you did at first. And we turn, and I meant, you remember me doing, showing you this, we turn and in our repentance, we are humbling ourselves before God. And what church does God do to the humble? He gives grace and he pours out his grace. God himself pursuing us and we're doing this and we're pursuing the things even as christians pursuing the things of the world trying to find satisfaction in them and he's saying repent and so we turn to him and we humble ourselves and we receive his grace we don't have to do we don't have to work we don't have to turn and genuflect or you know go to church a couple of times or read the bible for an hour and somehow pay penance Jesus has already done this for us. All we have to do is turn to him. God, would you forgive me? He washes our feet at that moment. That's the idea here. But isn't it interesting? Do you see what he says there? Peter is saying, I'm not going to let you wash my feet. And how does Jesus respond? Then you will have no part with me. Wow. Ooh, Jesus, that. It's a little harsh, don't you think? Now, let me just tell you what that means. But in view of this, today, there is a, a movement afoot. You may have seen the billboard that says God is not angry. That is a church that supports this idea. And that idea is when we've come to Christ, he's washed all of our sins away. Our body has been washed, so to speak. And we never need to confess our sins again. We never need to repent because all those sins are washed away. I mean, it sounds logical doesn't it? But it's just simply not rooted in truth. There's examples of confessing. There's examples of repenting. Why? To wash our feet. And if we've gotten a hold of this wrong teaching, and so you have said, well, you know what? I, I don't need to confess my sins. I don't need to repent. God loves me. God forgives me. I'm good. Well, he's telling you, you're doing this. Stop doing this and do this. Can you do this? And then there is ample forgiveness and a receiving of his grace. Now, if you're familiar with what the Septuagint is, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And if you were to turn to Deuteronomy 12.12, this concept of no part in me is found here in the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, it uses almost the same exact word for part. You have no part in me, except it applies it to the Levites. Now, follow me here. I don't want to spend too much time here, but follow me. When we are, when, when the, when the Levites, who were very honored before God, when he's saying that they did not have a part in them and no inheritance, that wasn't a punishment that forced the people to give and share their inheritance with them. Do you follow? But it was clear that the Levites did not receive that inheritance directly from God. And Jesus is simply saying this, that if you don't let me wash your feet, you are turning your back 
on my inheritance. All of this grace that is freely given to you, you're saying no. And you're continuing to walk after the things of the world. And I'm saying, don't do that. The grace is here. It's for you. Receive it. Turn to me. Repent and turn to me to receive ample provision, ample grace for every day. This is part of our inheritance, church. We're not as the Levites who have no inheritance and depend on the people. We, as children of God, have a full inheritance as adopted sons and daughters of God. So, let me move on right now. This is significant, okay? Our bodies have been washed, but we, our feet still need to be. Cole, thank you for bringing that to my mind last week. I want us now to, it says here, that the second command is that we hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. Let me tell you why when I tell you there's still hope by me wearing this jersey. That hope is very slim hope. Well, I believe in my eagles more than that. Okay. But here is why my hope that the eagle, why me saying I still have hope that the eagles will not only just go to the Super Bowl another time and win, I, I, I want you to see how that is compared to the world and the hope that we have in Christ is so different. And there's only one difference. Now follow me here. My hope and all hope rests on promises and those promises are rooted in truth. Now, if you want to see it as a hierarchy, truth is the foundation. And from that truth springs promises. And on those promises rests our hope. Here's what the world does. Do you see this truth? Hope in that truth. You know what? My eagles won last year. That's a truth. And if there's anyone who wants to disagree with that, I want to talk to you after the sermon today. But there is a, I, I, there is a truth, and that is they beat the Pats. Maybe it took them down to the last second, but they won, and I am now resting my future hope in that truth. Well, that's a shaky truth because the missing, prop, the missing part is that there's no promise. I, Doug Peterson, God bless you, coach. You can promise us all you want, and I hope you're right. That the Eagles will one day rise again on wings of eagles, and one day we'll win that Super Bowl. Do I hear an amen? And the truth is that that hope is rooted in a past truth, but in a man's promise. Here's the difference then. Our hope rests on truth out of which springs a divine, all-powerful, many truths of God's word. And he cannot lie. He is not like a man, and he, man thinks, well, based on the past, I'm going to predict the future. No, here's God. Based on the future that I know, I'm going to predict the future. I like that promise because God's been there. He sees He sees 
what lies ahead. He sees the promised land, okay? And he's calling us to it. That promised land is filled with promises, hello, that I'm going to rest my hope in. Let me give you an example. Here's the truth. Jesus was raised from the dead, bodily raised from the dead, not just spiritually raised from the dead. I mean, we'll all spiritually rise. When, when I die, hopefully later than sooner, when I die, and it will happen should Jesus tarry, my body will go into the ground, but my spirit will rise, okay? That's my spiritual resurrection. And at the end of the age, I will bodily be raised from the dead. Jesus was bodily raised from the dead after his crucifixion, three days later. This bodily resurrection is the foundational truth to Christianity. And from that truth springs many promises. Here's one for you. We sung about it. Beneath the waters, I will rise. Now, that water baptism and coming up out of the water is symbolic of that resurrection power in me. You see, because the Bible says I'm dead in my sins, completely spiritually disconnected from God. And the best way to describe that disconnect is death. Honestly, that's a pretty drastic description if you ask me. But can I say it's also an accurate one? So I'm said that I, it's said because of my sins, I'm spiritually dead. But when I trust in Christ, I am spiritually raised to life by the resurrection power of God. The very power that raised Jesus from dead is now at work in me, and I am spiritually raised. It actually says that I, I am raised with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And so there I am, I'm, I'm, I'm spiritually, I'm regenerated. There is life coursing through me and that life is from God himself. It is not simply man's hope or me just thinking really positively that day. No, it is God's breath, life, spirit in me, raising me from death to life, making me now in right relationship with God. His spirit in me, the spirit of life courses through me. And so consequently, I'm made alive. One day, there's also, here's another promise. One day, I will bodily be raised from the dead and my body will be transformed to be like his glorious body. Does that not blow your mind? My body is gonna be like his, not that I'm becoming God, not that you're gonna become God. That's the distinguishing mark between he and me. But my body, that I, this resurrection body is gonna be like his. And last forever, incorruptible, imperishable, in total communion with God. No, the curse completely lifted. The curse has no hold on me, we sang this morning. And so out of these promises, I am going to rest my hope. And when I stumble into sin to realize God's spirit is still in me and his life is still coursing through me. I am still alive and I am still raised with Christ. I am still seated with him on his throne. And I cannot say that I fully comprehend this, but that is where I am in Christ. And this is my inheritance because it's a promise. So I refuse to feel distant from God because he, listen church, he is not distant from me. If I look miles and miles away at the Rocky Mountains and they seem so small 
And I have to confess in analogy, I have to confess, you know what? God just seems so small in my life. Why doesn't he just change these things? Well, let me tell you, God was not the one who moved, but I did. I am doing too much of this. And he says, turn to me and watch how big my God is. That's the truth. The promise is, if you turn to me, I will pour out my grace upon you. So many promises that we have in the word of God, our inheritance. And so with this holding on to the hope, it is because that hope is rooted in these precious promises of God that rest on an unshakable truth many unshakable truths. And this is what the book of Hebrews is getting at. And he's saying, guys, guys, this unshakable truth, it is all found in Jesus, the sacrifice and sacrificer. And so we may get into this, but in chapter 12, he says, so fix your eyes on him. Because the, 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 my hope is rooted in a promise that is eternal and it is unbreakable because that hope, excuse me, that promise is rooted in truth that will never change. So what does he tell us to do? Then he says this, hey guys, in view of this, because there are times in which our hope gets shaken, there are times in which we take our eyes off of Christ, his grace, and we set our eyes on the things of the world. They can sometimes lead us into sin. They can distract us, occupy our attention. And we can kind of, if you will, put God on a shelf. He's saying, here's what you need to do. You need to consider how you can spur one another on to love and good deeds. And so here's what I'm going to encourage you. Every time that we get together, because the very next command is, how do we do this? Remember the particip participles, sorry for giving you a grammar lesson here, but participles modify, in this case, the verb. The, the participle, it's actually two of them here, one in the negative, don't forsake assembling together, but here's the other participle, encouraging. Not forsaking, but encouraging. How do we spur one another on? by not forsaking the gathering together, but by encouraging. This word encouraging is the Greek word, you may have heard it before, parakaleo, to encourage. We get the, the word paraclete. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete. You may remember that from Sunday school or a theology class. The Holy Spirit is my paraclete. Parakaleo means, kaleo meaning called, para meaning alongside. The Holy Spirit is called along my side. Now, in John 14, you, many English translations don't just leave it at paraclete. They translate it comforter or counselor. He is the one who comes along my side tenderly with his arm around me. Now, for me, I like that pastoral model. There are times in which it's in, and I'm just going to give you a, a visual here. There are times in which as a pastor, I may need to face someone and give a correction. But generally, 
the way that Spirit would have me move is to come alongside and put my arm and to say, you know what, let me encourage you. Let me remind you of these truths of God's Word. Let me remind you of the hope that's now built into the promises of these truths. And so my goal as a pastor is to encourage, to encourage means to infuse courage. That's our English word. Infuse courage in someone. And how do you do that? By reminding them of the precious promises of God. And I realize that my time is almost up here. Sarah Joy went through a very difficult time. And you may remember a year and several months ago, and she went in for a 30-minute operation to have her gallbladder removed. It turned into a six-hour ordeal in which we learned later that her life was threatened. When she discovered this, instead of saying, wow, God, thank you that you spared my life, she said, Lord, why didn't you take my life? And she was discouraged. And here's, and she's confessed to you. She said, you know, I realized that there was a depression that had taken root in my life. And how long it had been there, she didn't know. But this circumstance brought it to light. And she really, it was raw. It hurt. It made her feel distant from God. And she started doing this. And she sat down with the family. It actually took her about two or three months to do this. And she called all the family members together. And she said, guys, here's what's going on in my life right now. And it's really hard. And so we asked her, well, Sarah Joy, what can we do for you? And she said, the first thing that came out of her mouth, she said, please don't try to fix me. That's hard because us Curtises, we're fixers. <laughs> we're fixers. Confession time, we're fixers. And so this was hard for us. And there were times in which we, that the words out of our mouths were trying to fix her. And we go, okay, okay, well, what, what do we do? And here's the only thing that we could do. Just simply remind her of God's promises. That was it. Just remind her of God's promises. Very tactfully, but come along her side and remind her of the precious promises of God. And so eventually, um, God has just been healing her and dealing with that depression because it's not just an emotion, it's rooted in a cause and Jesus is healing in process of healing that cause and drawing her back to himself. She was wandering off and we just prayed, my wife and I, we prayed with tears. God, what do we do? She, I, we, I can't counsel her. God, I'm a counselor. What can I do? And God is just saying, come along her side and encourage her, remind her of my promises. And so that's all that we could do. And, and I, honestly, I felt inadequate doing that because I'm always, well, here's what you need to do. Let me tell you how to overcome this. And Shine was saying, Dad, do this. You're doing this. Do this, please. Okay. And some of the basic truths of God's word about his relentless love. You see, that's why we started having her sing that song up on stage. Pursue the 99. 
God's recklessness. It's because that was her testimony as she was coming out of this. And God, through others, Jesus, the Holy Spirit is our paraclete, but you and I are called alongside people to in that way, inspired by God's Spirit and led by His Spirit, we are now a paraclete of sorts, coming along their side to do what? Well, here's what you need to do. Let me fix you. No. Here's the truth. And here's what God promises you. And he is so faithful. And as God was reminding her of these precious promises, it was as if life just began to overwhelm her and win her. And this is our privilege, church. We gather together for this reason. It's just my turn right now to offer you the hope found in God's word. It is your turn Wednesdays. It's your turn maybe during worship, maybe before or after a service. It just happens to be my turn right now. And as your pastor, I want to extend these truths which God's promises are rooted in and you can hope in. And for Shine, it changed. it's changing her life. And she is starting to walk closer and closer with him every day. And she has her struggles. But I tell you, when I told you that story of Stephen Curtis Chapman's son, Will, can you only imagine the weight of guilt on his shoulders when he went to park his SUV in the driveway and ran over his sister? Can you imagine the extent of ministry that the paraclete, the spirit, had to do with his own life and to his own soul? That's yours and my privilege. There's a lot of Will Chapmans out there. My daughter was one of them. And it was God's precious promises that her hope rests in that we just simply needed to remind her of. That is the power of truth from which God's unfailing promises 